Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in South Bend, Indiana, and across from me, in the virtual studios in Portland, Oregon, is the runner-up for the 1990 Grammy Award for Best New Artist, losing only to Millie Vanilli by a slight margin, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. (laughs) I should have beat them, man, but they were lip-syncing. See, they cheated. They should have gave me the award after they found they were cheating. Come on now. I know. It's, it's, It's a shame that they haven't, you know, enshrined you as the, as the eventual winner, but... Oh, well, you'll always be a footnote to history, I guess. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Sad, but true. Sad, but true. How's it going? How are you this fine week? Uh, Doing well. Doing well. By the way, you know, here we are in the new year of grace since we're in Advent. So we've already kicked off the new year. We're, We're in the liturgical year 2022 already. Even if your calendar, your secular calendar doesn't say it, happy belated new year to you, Deacon. Yes, and to you well as as Ken, and to you as well, and to all our listeners out there. Uh, hopefully, you had a good start to your Advent season. And I love the fact that we, as a church, still celebrate Advent. You know, it, it's even worse now. Now it's after Halloween. Yeah. They start putting out Christmas decorations in the stores. So yeah. we we want to forget everything about. You know, we just want to go right from one holiday, if you will, to another. And I love the church. There's a wait a minute. There, there's a process here. There's a, a rollout here, right? So we so we focus now on Christ, preparing ourselves, our hearts, our minds, or our souls, to receive Christ uh, in Christmas. You know, to anticipate the coming of Christ uh, again, not just at Christmas time, but also into our lives today, and then at the end of our lives as well. So I love the fact the church helps us and prepares us for the Christ coming into into the world. Well, and of course, points us also forward to Christ's, the culmination of all things in Christ, in the second coming, you know, which, uh, which is we're building more towards every day. And so that's why we should prepare our hearts, not just so that we can have awesome things under the Christmas tree, but we should prepare our hearts so that we too one day will join him at the eternal banquet. And that's, it doesn't get any better. That's frankly the best Christmas gift you could ever, you could ever want is the supper of the lamb. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, amen. I couldn't agree with you more. And and a beautiful Revelation 19 verse 9 um, is is a perfect way to kind of launch into the document that we're talking about. Uh, recently put out by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the Church. And we talked about last time as a way of introduction, kind of the the purpose and the scope that the bishops laid out for why they were. Uh, producing a document on the Eucharist, especially post-pandemic, which, which you said, of course, was was uh, very timely and necessary. Uh, and then at the end, we talked about how the bishop said this, this document is twofold. It talks about Christ making a gift to himself in the Eucharist. And then the second part of the document is our response to that gift of Christ in the Eucharist. You know, and so um, now we're going to uh, begin today talking about that first part of the document, the gift of Christ in the Eucharist. And what I love about this section, you know, is basic Eucharistic theology 101. 
But yeah. we often have to get back to the basics. A lot of people may listen. Well, I already know that. But, you know, um, even professional athletes have to get back to the basics. Right? I was watching uh, a show on um, the other day. Well, what was it called again? I forget the name of the movie. But it was about this football player. His last name was Bullsworth. And um, he was an overweight kid, but had this dream that he wanted to play for the Arkansas Razorbacks. And so... Um, uh, so they showed him playing Pop Warner football and other kids were making fun of him because he was overweight. And then he got to high school and uh, he got a scholarship, but not to University of Ar not to a Division One school. And so he said, well, forget it. I'm going to walk on at Arkansas. So he, he went and he walked on and he, they redshirted him his first year. But he ended, he ended up getting a scholarship. And by the time he was a senior, he became All-American. And not only that, but also academic All-American. And he got drafted by the Indianapolis Colts and became a starter. <laughs> wow. But, but the thing was, they focused that movie, the basics, his steps, how he moved his feet. And they showed him working on that over and over and over, even in college, just the basics over and over and over again. And I think it's that's exactly what we need, exactly what we need. And the life of the church now, especially when it comes to the Eucharist. Yeah, we've heard it before, but it's, 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 it's doing that that beautiful uh, repetition, building spiritual muscle memory. Right, that's what athletes yep. do. They yep. they do those over and over again to build muscle memory. So we're building that spiritual muscle memory that will help us to truly live our life of faith with passion and conviction. You know, and one of the ways that we do that is by fully entering into what we are doing when we are at the Eucharist. And by fully entering in, that means to pay attention, to participate, to fully be present to what's going on. You know, so many times when we get to Mass, we're, we're, rush, we're, we're rushing in, you know, maybe even a few moments late, we sit down, we're taking off our coat, and the Mass has already started. And how many times can you, at the end of a Sunday Mass, remember what the first reading was? Or how many times at the end of Sunday Mass can you remember what was the theme that you heard in the opening prayer? You know, these are things that are, you know, much like the, the liturgical year is meant to lead us into, to prepare our hearts for what's for the high points, but they are steps that are meant to orient us to what's going on. And that's why when you mentioned there, Deacon, you know, the, that, building that spiritual muscle memory, being present to every moment of the Mass, even if we say, gosh, I've heard this a million times before. I've been to 40,000 Masses at this point in my life. I can tell you everything the priest is supposed to say. But being present right here and right now actually changes me. It changes me and it makes me more in love with what is taking place. And so that's why, you know, the, the liturgical year repeats every year. We know the story. We know what happens at Christmas. We know what happens at Easter. But we're different people when we approach it each year. And because of that, we need to continually be present. And we're invited to be continually present to these. And so that's why, like you say, the, the bishops are, yeah, they're going to give us Eucharistic Theology 101 here. For some of us, this may be Eucharistic Theology 99, because we didn't pay attention the previous 39,999 times that we were told this, or that it was prayed at Mass while we weren't paying attention. 
So I love this document. And the, the fact that they actually draw upon right here in paragraph eight, the beginning of, of this section on the gift, they draw upon uh, a Eucharistic prayer, the preface of the Eucharistic prayer from Holy Thursday, because it teaches us about the Eucharist. And so that's where we begin tonight with this quotation from the Mass of the Lord's Supper celebrated on Holy Thursday. Say the priest prays these words, for he is the true and eternal priest who instituted the pattern of an everlasting sacrifice and was the first to offer himself as the saving victim, commanding us to make this offering as his memorial. As we eat his flesh that was sacrificed for us, we are made strong. And as we drink his blood that was poured out for us, we are washed clean. Now that's what the priest prays at the Eucharistic prayer on Holy Thursday. In those eight lines are, are, are contained the church's understanding of what the Eucharist is. It's a sacrifice, it's the real presence of Christ, and it has effects on our lives, bringing us into communion. So those are the three things that the bishops are going to unpack out of this prayer and in this section on the Eucharist as gift. Sacrifice, real presence, and communion. And so that's what we're going to discuss over the uh, in, in this section right here. Yeah, and um, I made a note here that the power of those eight lines, especially the, the end of the first four, I think really talks about what they're going to be expanding on in this section. Priest, sacrifice, victim, and memorial. You know, so yes. I'm going to, as, as they touch on these later on in the document, I'm going to, I'm going to give a little short reflection, expand on these, um, especially the, from, the, from, the, from the Hebrew and from the Greek, because these words are powerful if you understand what they truly mean. And the second part you know, we eat his flesh, we drink his blood. It brings you back to what I said before about the vampires and zombies, right, on television. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, vampires have to drink blood and zombies have to eat flesh to stay alive. But it's it's make-believe. I mean, right. that's not real. But what we're talking about here in, in this prayer from Holy Thursday, we are talking about truly consuming flesh and blood that will live forever. Vampires do it, but it's make-believe. It's not real. There's no vamp. There's no such thing as vampires. Zombies eat it to live forever, but it's just make-believe. But I think culturally, be because they're so pagan, that's the way of really under trying to understand how can we as human beings have eternal life. And it, it's it's a, a kind of a sad riff on what's happening in the Eucharist. Because when we focus on what's happening in the Eucharist, that's the really real. I mean, we are truly receiving what we need to get us to heaven if we if we fully choose to cooperate with the grace, which is also something that they're going to be talking about later in the right. night as well. So this, I think, is a perfect way to set up um, what's going to be coming later in the document. I love it. They go on in paragraph nine to say, the salvation offered in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is nothing less than sharing in the very life of God, in the communion of love among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ, there is no greater gift that God could possibly give us. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. God shares his life with us. In Christ, they say, we are sharers in the divine nature, a reference to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4. And the church fathers referred to this participation in the divine life as divinization. See, Christ came in human flesh to make us divine, 
to invite us into the interior life of the Blessed Trinity. Not because God needed it. God is giving this to us as a gift. This is a superabundance of God's love for us. Not only did he create us, he wants us to be in communion with him, in the full sense of the word communion, to be one with. They go on to say, Pope Francis reminds us that in the bread of the Eucharist, creation is projected towards divinization, towards the holy wedding feast, towards unification with the creator himself. That's what the Eucharist does. It invites us into communion. You know, a month ago, uh, Ken, I was set up. You know, <laughs> so it was it was after a talk that I gave and they took me out to dinner and this person brought someone along with them who attended the talk who was a panentheist. So, so pantheism is a heresy that says that God is, it's God is equals his creation. So God is a tree. God is a rock. God is, you know, but panentheism says that God is in his creation. So God is not the tree, but he's in the tree. You know, God is not in the river, but he, he is in the river. He's not the river. He's in that kind of thing. Okay. So he brought this person along who I, obviously I did not know who this person was, but they brought this point that, you know, cause I had taught the same point you just made about in from, from second Peter chapter one, four says we are partakers in the divine nature. So they, so that person asked me, how come that doesn't make you a panentheist? So if you say you share God's divine nature, does that mean that God is in you? And he said, that's what I believe. Just like God is in a tree, God is in the river, God is, isn't God in you, doesn't make you a panentheist. And I said, ah, okay, very good. Here's the difference. A like, okay, if your wife is pregnant and the child in the womb is being nourished by the mother, but the child is not the mother, <laughs> you see? Right. So we, we talk about God's life is in us, but that doesn't make us God. You see, that, that right. doesn't make us God. So in, in the original understanding in Genesis, we were supposed to, we were created to reflect God's life. So when we think, we're reflecting the mind of God. When we speak, we're reflecting the speech of God. When we love, we're reflecting the love of God. And the fall damaged that relationship of love and life and intimacy and communion. So this process of divination where Christ gives us his life in the Eucharist, gives his life in the Holy Spirit, does not make us God, but makes us worthy again to reflect the life of God in us. Does it, that make it, sense? It, it does make sense, absolutely. And I think the image you've used of the, of the mother and child, the child within the mother's womb, is a beautiful way. I mean, we talk about ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what St. Paul writes. He's like, you are, do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Eventually, we will be in communion with God, facing God, you know, looking upon God face to face, as, as we're told in, in Revelation. The, but even then, we remain individuals. We are individuals who are grafted into the family of God. Um, you know, I don't know how it's going to work. As St. Paul says, you know, as we are, we, we can see, but we don't know what we shall be. But we do know that we will be like unto him. 
and have glorified bodies like like Christ's. And so this is actually one of the things that I think our Eastern brothers and sisters, the, uh, you know, Eastern uh, uh, theology, Eastern uh, Catholic theology and Orthodox theology does a much better job of kind of yeah. grappling with perhaps than we do in the West. Um, I think it's just, uh, there's a, there's a beautiful spirituality in reflecting upon and praying and contemplating divinization. And we're not that good at it here in the West is I kind of think one of the things it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Especially when you, you know, that translation from Augustine, although the translation is different here uh, in the document, paragraph nine, it says the maker of man was made man so that man might literally, it says where man might become God. But this translation says man be, become a receiver of God, which I think is more theologically accurate what's happening. Because, I mean, when you say that uh, Jesus became man so that man might become God, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, that, whoo, there's something off there. Again, goes right. back to the panentheism thing. But sure. that's not what they mean literally, right? We, right. we the, the language that we use is trying to explain the reality, like a trinity. How can you have three, how can three things be one? You, right. you see? That is, it's yep. that, how, how do we wrap ourselves? And human language ultimately fails to fully appreciate the depth of the mystery. But what we do know is that God's life in us does not make us God. You see, and that, that's the key thing to understand. It disposes us to be more open to receiving the grace from God wants to give us, right? And we're, we're better able to reflect. When we talk about, well, Christ, someone might meet Christ when they first meet you. Right, they're meeting. Right. They're not actually meeting G the real Jesus Christ, right? But because we're reflecting, huh? We're reflecting God's life. Then, in that sense, they are meeting Christ in a sense through us, not in reality, but they are in a sense meeting Him through us because we are witnessing to the power of Christ's life working in us, and that's what the Eucharist helps us to do. And you can't get that when you're staying at home watching it on TV. You can't. Nope. nope. Yeah, there, this is something that is quite incarnational. It it yes. requires being in the flesh, you know, and that's much like Christ took flesh in order to give us this ability. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier you made reference to the fall and to Christ actually and to his sacrifice offsets, not just offsets, but it's super abundant to the effects of the fall. Um, so here in chapter 10, the, the first portion of the section is the sacrifice of Christ, the Eucharist as sacrifice. They say, the bishops say, to begin to comprehend the tremendous gift offered by Christ through his incarnation, death and resurrection, that gift which is made present to us in the Eucharist, we must first realize how truly profound is our alienation from the source of all life as the result of sin. This is where the rubber hits the road, folks. We need the Eucharist because we can't do it ourselves. We are in a state of sin. And it's through the sacraments that we are restored, not only restored to life, but given a superabundance of grace, which makes us even better than we were in our state of nature. Yeah, absolutely. And paragraph 11, I think, drives it home. It says, when we misuse the gifts of creation, when we selfishly focus on ourselves, which is what sin does. It takes the attention away from God and focus on itself. Remember Genesis 3. What was the lie? You will be like God. Gods. Right? Yep. So, so yep. you don't need God because now 
by focusing on, on, on yourself, you could become your own God. That's basically what the lie is. It says, and, and the British say when that happens, we choose the path of vice rather than virtue, mm -hmm. right? Because virtue is that continual habit of cooperating with God's grace. So again, it helps us to build that spiritual mus muscle memory through repetition of doing, uh, of cooperating with the grace of the sacraments and choosing always to do the good. It says this self-centeredness is an inher inheritance of the fall of our first parents. So again, that's an important point, Ken. When people say, well, how could a baby sin? How can you say a baby has to A baby didn't do anything. Well, it's not that the baby did anything. They're inheriting a state. It's, it's like a glass that's empty, right? It, it, that's basically what they're inheriting. They're inheriting this, this emptiness. Right. And what baptism does through the grace, it fills that glass to overflowing. So God's grace is overflowing in that person's life. And, and, and again, as we'll see later, what does that direct us toward? The Eucharist. Exactly. <laughs> as exactly. all the sacraments direct us toward the Eucharist. So, so baptism disposes us and, and prepares our souls so that we can receive Jesus worthily in the Eucharist. That's right. And this paragraph ends with, without the grace of Christ received at baptism, strengthened in confirmation and nourished by the Eucharist, this selfishness dominates us. Sin, in a word, is selfishness. It's the desire to be our own God. It's the desire to be me, my will alone, and everything else either serves me or is just an annoyance to me. That's what sin is. And we've all, we all, we've all had that experience. We've all, I want it to be me. You know, I want a me day. And to be in the state of sin is to say every day is a me day. You know, you know, you know, Ken, as you say that, you know, I was thinking, what, why is sin so appealing? You know, I mean, we, we intellectually know what it is. All right. We yeah, just, we yeah. just, I think we just described it beautifully reflecting on the, what the bishop said here. But the thing is about sin, it's pleasurable, right? It makes us like physically feel good, intellectually feel good, because somehow we think we're in control. Right. And, and so, but when we try to live virtuously, what does that mean? That means sacrifice. It's going to hurt, but we don't right, want to hurt. Right. We, we, we don't want sacrifice. We don't want to look at that crucifix. We don't want to see that the path to heaven leads through the cross. We don't want to see that the only way we can get to resurrection is through crucifixion. The only way we can get to Easter Sunday is Good Friday. Right. We, we don't want to see that. So we want to experience things that make us feel good which gets back to that Epicurean way of thinking. You know, Epicurus was a philosopher who thought that pleasure is good, pain is bad. So maximize things that give you pleasure and minimize things that give you pain. So that's the complete antithesis of what we're talking about here because the Eucharist only comes to us through sacrifice. Yes. See, that's what makes the Eucharist so powerful. So we have to overcome that desire to, not that pleasure is a bad thing, because pleasure is just a very basic, ephemeral way that God directs us toward our ultimate end, which is him. But Satan takes pleasure out of its proper context as a means to an end and makes it an end in itself. And that's where it becomes a problem. Exactly. When it becomes an end in itself. Because we all struggle with sin. Yep. you know. But, but when we make sin our point of worship, our point of departure that we focus on, that's when it becomes a problem, which is why I'm uh, so uh, pleased that the bishops uh, address that directly here.
Yeah, and begin with focusing on the Eucharist as sacrifice. Um, Paragraph 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus makes explicit that his impending death, freely embraced out of love, is sacrificial. Uh, They say, in the words and gestures of the Last Supper, Jesus makes it clear that out of love for us, he is freely offering his life for the forgiveness of our sins. So think about it. If sin is selfishness, his is the single most unselfish act because Christ himself had no sin to be forgiven. All of the sin that he was sacrificing himself for was ours. It is the single most unselfish act. And if you think about it that way, Christ's command at the Eucharist, at the Last Supper, to do this in memory of him is more than a call for us to make the Eucharist present. It's more than a call for us to celebrate the Last Supper as we do when we when we celebrate Mass. It's also a call for us to be unselfish. It's a moral command as well. To do this in memory of him includes to be unselfish and to have others good at the heart of our actions. It's a twofold effect that he's commanding us to do. So in 14, paragraph 14, the bishops say, why is it so important that we understand the Eucharist as a sacrifice? Because Christ's sacrifice of himself to the Father was efficacious and salvific because of the supreme love with which he shed his blood, the price of our salvation, and offered himself to the Father on our behalf. His blood shed for us is the eternal sign of that love. And as a memorial, the Eucharist is not another sacrifice, but it's the representation of the sacrifice of Christ by which we are reconciled to the Father. When we go to Mass, when we receive the Eucharist, we are standing at the foot of the cross upon which Christ's blood was shed. We are sitting at the Last Supper with the apostles, receiving from the hand of Christ the sacrifice that saves us. That's why it's a sacrifice, and that's why we participate in it. And that's why Christ offered it for us as a supreme gift of love. Deacon. Yeah, just to focus on a couple of important things here. Now, I'm, I'm going to get into this later when they talk when, in, in a document where it talks about this is my body, tauto estinto somo moi, in, in, um, uh, in, in the Greek. We'll talk about that later. But um, in Exodus chapter 24, where it says that this is the blood of the covenant, the words of Christ are uh, are extremely important there. And uh, maybe we'll have to talk about that next time, pick up on that next time. Sure. I, now I'm on the edge of my seat, so I'm going to tune See, in See, you have to week, listen next week. Just yeah? as you will, exactly. <laughs> in the meantime, folks, you can connect with us on Facebook. Go to Living Stones Media. Just type that into your old Facebook search bar and uh, join our little group. You can download previous episodes of the show at moderndayradio.com. But Deacon, until we get to the thrilling continuation of this week's show next week, might we have a blessing? May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.